Welcome to the Farcast here at Shadron State College. I'm Daniel Binkard with my co-host Alex Helmbricht, as always, and we're here with the illustrious Joyce Hardy, Dr. Joyce Hardy, Professor of Life Sciences here, uh, Physical and Life Sciences. I want to make sure I get that uh, name correct because it seems like that's one of the things we're always um, double-checking ourselves on in college relations when we're putting together marketing material. Now, we're now called chemistry. natural sciences. Natural sciences. Alex? <laughs> <laughs> I think I went off what was on the directory. Oh, we better up, get up that we updated, get that too. updated yeah, too. Yeah. Okay. It's Check all always the a process. Yeah, it's like, all right, where does chemistry fall here? Okay, geosciences and... Yeah, it's you guys have everything going on over we in do. the sciences. Mm-hmm. We do. So, Joyce, um, let's get right into it here, and uh, we've got a lot of questions for you. So, the first one, and I apologize in advance, folks. Alex wrote these, and I, <laughs> I uh, did not look at them ahead of time. <laughs> so, so, it's all good. Uh, so, Joyce, other than a seven-year stint, you have taught and worked as a graduate student here at CSC since the early 1980s. Now, if you look back over that whole time. Can you consolidate it down into two minutes? No. Uh, what has that experience been like, and how much has changed during your time here? Oh, wow. Um, I came to Shattered State as an undergraduate in, I'll age myself, 1977. And at the time, the entire science building was all male. There were no female faculty in the science building. There had been in the past, but at that time, they were all male. Um, you know, if you remember that, your history from that time period, since you're not old enough to have been there. Um, There was a lot of gender discrimination at the time, but not in that building, not at all. Um, They were very, very supportive of the female students, um, amazing people. And that has continued throughout. um, You know, the people are what makes up Shadron State. However, one big change that's occurred has occurred as we've moved into the information age. Um, At that time, you would walk into your classroom and you would take frantic notes of everything that was said as your faculty members would give, you know, pages and pages of notes of information. The only place you found information was from your textbook, from the instructor, and from the books in the library. Yeah. And um, so the instructor's job really was to fill your head with knowledge and then your job afterwards was to learn all of that and figure out what it meant. And as the Internet came about um, and as information became much more available, um, the whole role of the faculty has changed dramatically. So my students can find information that I don't know very easily. And um, so me being the sole information provider in the classroom um, is not a useful thing for them. They can find that information. What they need to know is how to figure out what it means, how to use it, how to make sense of it, how to critically evaluate whether or not the information is valid or not, how to determine if you've got information that conflicts with one another, um, and and to know where their boundaries are and how to find that information. Yeah. So there's been a huge change in what the faculty member's role is since then. What hasn't changed is the role of the faculty member at Shattern State College and is being supportive for the student. Um, you know, everybody has challenges, everybody has... Um, advantages and disadvantages that they deal with. And, um, you know, having that, that mentor in, the, in your back pocket and, and who's willing to push you hard, um, you know, give you a hard slap on the back if you need something to get a little bit more motivated, um, but being right there to help you has not changed. That's what's kept Shattern State, I think, um, relevant and viable and, 
and really progressive as we move move forward. Oh, absolutely. You know, one thing that comes to my mind is in, when I was a student, it was kind of on the cusp of having that knowledge at your fingertips. But I'm curious, what is the, um, what's the classroom like now in terms of students taking advantage of real-time access to information? You know, if there's a discussion going and there's a question about a fact, are they looking it up mm-hmm. to double-check in real time? Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, you know, with the cell phones and with computers and, uh, yeah, they're, they're right there working with you. Um, if you say something that, that conflicts with what they thought they'd learned before, you know, they'll sit there and double-check it. And so the classroom yeah. is much more fluid and much more interactive than what it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. That's great. So, so as, as Daniel alluded to, a, a couple of your degrees are from CSC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've been here a long time, both as a student and as employee. Longer as a student, though. No. Almost. No, I'm just, We're always learning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Always learning. But, <laughs> That's true. But you, uh, you were a first-generation student, and you've mm-hmm. mentioned that you've really benefited from that in the past. Um, what are some of the things that, that make you have that belief, and, and maybe who are some of the people that, that kind of made you think that way? You know, as a first-generation student coming to college, my older sister had came for one semester, I, I believe. Um, but she was seven years older than me, so her experience was very different than mine. Um, as a first-generation of science student, there's a whole lot that you didn't, I didn't know about what college was. I didn't know the, the expectation of a student other than, you know, what you had from high school, which was you turn in your assignments, you do good work, and you don't make trouble. And, um Understanding what that shift meant and understanding how that shift happened and realizing that you didn't walk out of one class and forget the information because you really were going to use it in your next class um, was difficult. Understanding the languages and the words that were used. um, I know filling out the FAFSA form was difficult and Del Hussey uh, actually called us um, and talked to us about how some of the ways that we had checked the FAFSA form were, were not answering the questions in the way that the questions were meant to be answered, which dramatically changed my access to federal financial aid hmm. um, and made it supportive. Um, so, you know, as a first-generation college student, you didn't really know what you were getting into, and you didn't know the language, you didn't know the terminology. Um, we, our registration occurred in the old ballroom on the upstairs of the old... Um, student center, which was then the new student center located yeah. where the parking sure. lot is, just right, right east of Brooks Hall. And um, you would take your sheet, you're in, you know, Mr. McCafferty was my advisor, and he said, these are the courses I think you need. And you would walk over to, you know, the chemistry folks, and you they would sign a little sheet that said, yep, you could go into chemistry, and they would mark down a hash mark saying that you were now in chemistry so they could keep track of how the full, full the classrooms were. And then you'd walk over to biology, and you'd get into botany, and you know they'd sign you into botany and make a hash mark. And then you went to um, HPER and, and tried to get into an essential studies, and while it was right over the top of one of your other classes. So then you'd have to go back to botany and change your <laughs> botany lab. And then you'd go, and they'd cross you off of one lab and put you in the next, and you'd go back to HPER and get back into aquatics. Um, but during that entire experience, you were standing in line making conversations with people. And the faculty were, were even if they weren't in your program, if they were in English or wherever they were, were so supportive of you and answered questions. Um, but 
you know, it was a different experience. And sure. finding your classrooms, I, I'd been here for scholastic days. I knew buildings and things. But finding your classrooms and figuring out where to sit and understanding how to take notes was all a different world. Um, but the faculty were highly supportive. Uh, you know, we had chemistry Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning at 8 o'clock. And on Friday morning, Mr. McCafferty was there with a the help session. And you'd show up to the help session, and he would take your side and work with you on whatever problems you were struggling with. And you'd get your test back, and he'd say, now come talk to me in my office, and we'll work through those problems again. And um, That's always nice to hear. You know, it's just everybody was in your corner to try to help you be successful. And whether you were talking with students or faculty, the whole goal was for as many people to succeed as possible. And if you wanted to put the effort in, you made it happen. Um, I think I've wandered all the way around from your questions. <laughs> no, so, no, that's fine. I mean, it, um, that support is crucial. It, yeah. It's so important, and especially if you've never been there before and you may have doubts or, you know, um, not as much confidence or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Having those, those folks in your corner is huge. It was huge. I graduated uh, with my degree, and then I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. My husband and I had a good friend who was um, quadriplegic. We'd moved in to take care of um, his health care needs and decided we both decided we didn't want to go off to graduate school right away. And Delhussey again came to my aid and said, well, what else would you like to do and help fund me with another year of school? And at that point, then I jumped into the master's program here at Shadron State. So my undergraduate degree is biology with a minor in agriculture. My uh, master's degree is in botany with a focus in plant distribution and, and how that interacted with human um, activity. I did a survey of plants in Banner County, Nebraska for my bachelor's or my master's degree. Um, at the time I finished my master's degree, I graduated in August and the college had hired Dr. Jim O'Rourke to come teach agriculture, but he was on a World Health Organization contract and couldn't get here until October. So they asked me to teach for the first half of the semester his ag courses. And at that point, you know, I thought, well, we need a paycheck. I can do this for a while, even though I didn't want to be a teacher. But I fell in love with it. Yeah. And Jim was very supportive then in encouraging me to go for my doctorate and introduced me to um, a variety of people, one of who ended up being my ma major professor in my doctoral program. And that was at BYU, right? That was at Brigham, Brigham Young. Yep. Mm -hmm. okay. Brigham Young was very supportive of me as a female, married mother. Um, I wanted to get in and get my coursework done as soon as possible, and I wanted to do my research back in the sand hills of Nebraska during the summer. And they were very supportive of that. Um, I finished my doctoral coursework in two years, two winters, and my research then, and came back um, with the intent of writing my dissertation, that ne finishing my dissertation that next year, that third year. And that's when the RHOP program had just exploded. And the, um, Ted Davis said, can you teach a course? And I said, yes. And two weeks later, he said, can you teach two courses? And I said, yes. <laughs> and a week later, it was the Friday before school started. And he said, oh, I need you full time. Yeah, do a 4-4. Four -four. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what got me my job at Shattered State as a faculty member, oh, full time. Great. And before I forget, you mentioned the Sand Hills, which is kind of where you grew up, right? That is. Mm -hmm. My family's ranch, my dad's family's ranch is north of Mullen, Nebraska, and my mom's family ranch is north of Thedford, Nebraska. And those ranches are both in the family Excellent. still. Yeah. Well, Joyce, this question here, 
Now, this is probably it's a long one. This, Sorry. This, this was Alex, and I, I think there, there's some poetry here. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it off as written. Uh, your PhD is in botany, and as you so eloquently noted in your email to Alex, your academic expertise is plant ecological physiology, how plants interact with the environment and other living organisms, and the structural and metabolic characteristics that are involved in those interactions in succeeding within those living conditions and in plant distribution. Now, how do you explain that to those of us <laughs> like Alex and me who are not scientific? Okay. Um Let's take it back to the very beginning. Um, our universe is not real conducive to life. You know, uh, the, the living system is a system that constantly has to strive to stay alive. Um, it's, it's not the default. And so as we look at living systems in, in the earth, whether we're looking at a single-celled organism or a sequoia tree or a whale, um, there are certain features that make it more likely for life to succeed. And so looking at those physical features, which are the, mor the morphological or structural features, you can find um, characteristics that are beneficial for living in the habitat the organism's living in. And when you look at the chemistry that's going on at the cellular level and at the tissue level and the organ level, you can find chemical characteristics or chemical processes that are supportive of that as well. And so my work was looking at sandhills grasses and looking at how they had um, survived and th really thrive under uh, the combination of climate change. And at that time, we had been in a huge drought for several years. And so there was this long-term shortage of water and under grazing pressure. And so we looked, at, I looked at things like um, the number of, of pores on the leaf surfaces and the distribution of those. Were they in the, on the upper surface or the lower surface? Were they down in crypts or valleys? Um, how quickly did they respond to changing environmental conditions? The thought was that these pores would open and close, maybe taking two or three minutes to do so. And what we found very quickly in my research that at least for the sandhills grasses, um, those pores could open and close in response to sunlight um, faster than what my eye could perceive that there was a change in sunlight intensity, oh, wow. so very, very rapidly. So we went to the scanning electron microscope and the transmission electron microscope and found characteristics of what how those pores are controlled that allowed for that extremely fast responses. And so that was a major publication that came out in the American Journal of Botany back in 1991. Um, then we looked at, okay, so from that point, when you're under drought stress, knowing that plants need water to absorb their nutrients, and you're under grazing stress, um, are there changes in how the access to resources to survive? So we did some field studies looking at... Um, the nutritive values of grasses that had been under grazing stress versus not under grazing stress and, and compared those. So right. again, looking at sandhills grasses. So Sounds pretty fascinating to me. Yeah. You, you know, you always, again, from the layman perspective, you picture the plants are moving and adjusting, but slower than we are. <laughs> yeah. And, and that description of the, the pores opening and closing. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It is pretty cool. It was fun. I bet. Um, I better read this one, too, because there's some big words in here <laughs> for my small brain. Um, Steve Rolfsmeyer, a colleague of ours, uh, especially of yours in the High Plains Herbarium, uh, said that you're the most prolific plant 
or female plant collector in Nebraska. How has your collection helped document uh, current and past distributions and kind of helped shape discussions around potential climate change? Oh, a lot. Um, my, when I first knew that I was going to go into plant taxonomy, I knew I had to make a plant collection. And I'd worked with Dr. Ron Whedon, and we had done plant collections before, but the summer before I, I went into plant taxonomy, um, I took home plant presses. I knew how to collect them. I knew how to document where they were from. And we went on a field trip. We went on a family trip up to where my dad had been born, um, north of, north and a little bit east of Whitman. Um, he'd actually been born in Mullen, but that's where he was raised until he was about three or so. And we went to these exquisite lakes in the sand hills. Um, and we collected plants. And, you know, my folks are, are both, uh, were, my dad's no longer alive, but they were both, you know, constantly seeking new information. They were both intellectuals. They should have both gone to college, um, but they graduated at the height of the Korean conflict, and that wasn't an opportunity. Um, so they and my granddad took me into these um, habitats that are clear down in the middle of the sand hills where, you know, Botanists just don't travel. You needed four-wheel drive, and you needed permission of the landowners. And um, so back to these places. And I collected plants, and no problem. I identified the plants that fall. We put them in the herbarium. And um, eventually, I started my master's program down at Banner County. And when I started, the experts at the time had said maybe I'd find 250 different species. And I stopped collecting after I found over 500. Wow. So... And then there was a large push um, by the Nebraska Natural Heritage to document what was in different herbaria across the state. And I got a phone call, and they said, um, you collected water lilies in the sandhills. And I said, yes. Well, there are no water lilies in the sandhills. I said, well, yeah, there are. Um, they're, they're not found very commonly, but they're found in these lakes. And you collected wild rice in the sand hills. I said, yes. And they said, well, there's no wild rice in Nebraska. And I said, well, yes, Just there a little is. More diversity than in these very small lakes down in the middle of the sand hills. And, and you collected, I don't know, you know, some other plants there. And what we discovered as a result of my collections were the presence of the fens that are in the sand hills, which are um, boggy. They have sphagnum moss in them. They're boggy um, habitats. But rather than the water in, in a bog that comes from the rainfall, the water in the fins comes from groundwater that comes up, and it makes these very spongy soils. And in fact, you walk across them, and you can break through the plant root mass and end up in these this black, sludgy water mm. where if you get underneath the root mass, you'd never come back up again. Mm. Um, and there's stories of you know wagons, trains falling through, and bulls fighting and getting into there and not coming back up again. Um, and so... You know, I, because of my family's history in the Sand Hills and their interest in what I was doing, I was had access to amazing places mm -hmm. to collect plants that other people hadn't had access to. And throughout my parents' life, my, um, they will still, you know, go on plant collecting trips with me. In fact, my mother came on some of those with me later when I had a contract um, to do a survey of the fins and look at the plants that grow there. So... So you found more than 500 in, in Banner County. What, 
how many specimens in the sandhills did you? I've never done, I've never completed a thorough analysis of a single site. Mm. Um, I've got the plants, but they're not processed yet from my mom's family ranch north of Thedford. Um, and it's it's a great place because in the sand hills, you tend to get plants that move in from the north and the south and the east and the west. And then as, as it's a major flyway for birds, you also get plants that are brought in with those birds as well. Um, and then you've got some relic sites, which mm -hmm. we think probably the, the fins were. As, and so it'll be interesting when I finally take a break from some of my other projects and get back to working with plants to see how many were on my mom's ranch. But it's, it's certainly an interesting area in Nebraska, yeah. there's no yeah. doubt. Yeah, it's a unique area. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we did back in, I think it was 1978, um, there had been a plant found by... Um, early explorers, um, when Powell's expedition came through, they'd found the plant um, that's called a blowout penstemon, or blowout bluebells. Sometimes is another name for it, but it's not really a bluebells. Um, Bob Cowell from the University of Nebraska had found it in 1968, one site of it. And so in the summer of 1978, Ron Whedon and I spent hours out in the field, days and weeks out in the field, and we found... Um, major sites of that at the Valentine Refuge. And so that's probably my favorite plant in the Sandhills. Cool. Um, it's got a scent and an odor that is just amazing. It attracts bumblebees. And of course, with the bumblebees and being located in, in blowouts or highly eroded areas there, um, it has to have something that will spread far beyond that because the bumblebees won't be able to see it, per se. So um, once you smell it, then you can find them by smell. You don't need to to see them before you know that they're in the area. But oh, that's neat. It's amazing plant. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit. Okay. So, uh, Joyce, not just teaching in the sciences, but you've also been an administrator here at CSC. Mm -hmm. um, you were an interim dean and then uh, vice president for academic and student affairs. So tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. And I see we got a note here that this this was in the time of Y2K. <laughs> <laughs> Y2K was a problem, but not nearly as big a problem as 9-11. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it was interesting. I, it was never my intent to go into teaching until I had an experience with it where I realized that, um, you know, there's there's a personal satisfaction that comes from helping other people understand complex information. Um, I did not want to be an administrator in any way, shape, or form. Uh, took the interim dean's position as a direct response to a request from Dr. Sam Rankin, who was president at the time, um, and took the interim or acting uh, vice president for academic affairs as a direct response to Dr. Tom Kreppel, who had been the vice president who was moved up into the interim presidency for a year. And um, the experience was interesting. I learned that as the vice president, you have the ability to make difficult decisions that really can impact people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, we've got policies and processes in place, but you could make decisions that were the right decisions if you had the evidence to set aside that particular policy. And that's, again, what I really enjoyed about that. And I also really enjoyed getting to know more about Shattered State College from a, a bigger perspective. You know, as a faculty member, you, you know what you do. You know the things that interact 
with you, but you don't always know why you've got the decisions out there that are being made, and you don't yeah. understand exactly how your actions fit with the broader whole. Um, so that was probably the best thing that came out of the vice president. As I told Alex a little earlier today, um, we had the board of trustees on campus the morning of 9-11, and um, you know, I made a very quick phone call to my husband and said, here's what's going on. I don't know what the ramifications are, but can you possibly take care of my two kids, our two kids today? And um, I'll, I'll get in touch with you as soon as I can. And I didn't get home that night until oh, probably after 8 o'clock. And um, that was challenging for me because during that the entire day, my entire focus had to be on our students here and our people here and facilitating the people from the other campuses and the system office getting home and taking care of all of those other issues. And I had to set aside everything about being a mother and being a daughter and being a wife. And uh, I think at that point was the beginning of this is probably not going to be my career path for, right. for the long term uh, because it was difficult. So. Um. Well, you did leave the administration, I did. and and you rejoined the faculty ranks. How was that? How did that transition go? Really good. Um, the I I learned how far away from the fact that my profession I had been at that point. You know, during the nineteen early nineteen nineties when I was in graduate school. Molecular biology was just beginning to develop. And by 2005, when I went back to the classroom, you couldn't be a plant physiologist without being a molecular biologist. And we didn't have the technology here. Um, and to really become current with the technology that I would have needed to stay in the pathway that I was on, it probably would have taken a two-year sabbatical. And I didn't have that mm -hmm. time to do that. Um, so I realized that I had to change my my scholarship um, and my scholarly focus, even though I'm, I read a lot about it and I understand a lot about it. I am not a practicing plant physiologist anymore. And that was a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to rethink who you are. Yeah. Um, the, the role of the faculty member had changed dramatically um, because of the Internet. And so if you think about, you know, our 56 baud modems that we had in the 1990s versus what we had in the 2005, you know, the Internet had become a valid source of information, something very different than it had been earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and I walked into the classroom and I, I looked at the students and I looked at my, my notes I'd put together for the day and I thought, you know, I'm still very good at taking complex information and making sense of it, but and presenting that to students, but am I doing them a favor when they leave us? If if I'm the person that puts the information together to make sense of it, when do they learn those skills? And that's a big skill they needed. So I did a lot of studying on um, the role of the faculty and teaching methodologies, and, and I became pretty scholarly on seeking out different ways to facilitate the learning that the students needed. That was a challenge, mm -hmm. but it was a fun challenge. Um, the The really difficult part of it was 
that all of a sudden you no longer knew what type of information was fueling the decisions that were being made. And, you know, in the 2000s, there were still very difficult decisions being made with, you know, the the financial consequence of 9-11 didn't go away before we had the the housing crisis, uh, the, um, the real estate crisis. And, and so you had these very difficult decisions being made by campus administrators, and you no longer knew why they were being made. You no longer, you know, you, you knew that they were considering information very carefully and making the best decision possible when maybe there wasn't a good decision to be made. Mm-hmm. So you made the best one that you could. But I no longer had the knowledge of why those were the best decisions. And you had to just recognize that that's okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Um, I guess I've never thought of it in that way, um, you know, for those on campus who've maybe done a job and then have done a different job still on campus. You kind of look back and you're like, oh, well, I would have maybe done it this way or that way or whatever. But it's really, honestly, speaking from a guy who's done it, it's best just to move forward. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everyone's different and they can do their own thing and they can have the ball and run with it. Yep. Uh, Joyce, you mentioned the RHOP program, Rural Health Opportunities mm-hmm. Program. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? And you've obviously been involved with it almost from the beginning, right? Almost. Um, those discussions, I think, started in 1988, which was when I um, obtained my master's degree. Um, but, you know, Dr. Drucker had been working on it for a, had been building our relationship with UNMC for a long period of time. The year that I graduated with my master's degree, um, we had 100% acceptance of students who had applied for professional and graduate school. And that was, I think, the first year that it had ever been noticed that we had that. There's a picture Con Marshall has of all of us standing on one of the steps of the science building. <laughs> um, the RHOP program came in, and it started first with medicine, and then it you know, expanded quickly. And it was a learning experience. You know, The medicine folks were only going to be here for three years. The PAs only for two years. But we very quickly worked with them and figured out, you know, what what really works best for the students. Um, exciting, you know, it was still it was a huge growth in our program. So we went from having relatively small classes to really struggling with how do limited numbers of faculty teach these large numbers of students coming in, yeah. in the same way that we were committed to teaching, which t- means that we were working sixty and seventy hour work weeks, um, but. But it was exciting. The students were so enthused and so excited. And um, initially, we had a lot of non-traditional students in some of our programs, which um, brought a, a very different flavor to the, you know, to those classes. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. it was fun. Um, it was it, it it still is fun. But I mean, the the whole excitement and enthusiasm and being on the cusp of this new right. Uh, new experience was wonderful. Yeah, well, and it's really became be- become one of the things CSC is known for. Yeah, one statewide. of those pillars it for is. us. Absolutely. Um, something to really drive home, though, um, we have a lot of RHOP, Rural Health Opportunity students, RHOP students who are on these pre-selected classes, um, paths toward their professional schools. But that's only about one-third of our total students in our program. The other two-thirds of our students that are going toward health professions are on the traditional route. And they benefit because we work so closely with the medical center to make sure that our program is top-notch and giving them the students that can be successful. 
Um, but they also benefit because we've got this huge number of students from broadly diverse backgrounds, and they learn to work well with each other. Um, one of the benefits that our students have is the program is very collaborative. So the students are constantly working not to compete with each other, but to help each other succeed. Yeah. And that's the same philosophy that was here when I was an undergraduate. Even though you were really competing for the same slots, you weren't competing because you wanted to. You wanted your team to outcompete every other school that there was. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's been fun watching the Rural Health Opportunities Program grow and develop. We just added our tenth program this last fall with um, the introduction of the occupational therapy program. Mm -hmm. So we'll be doing interviews soon for the, that. That's excellent. Yeah, you know, I, I like seeing that. Um, Oh, the uh, supplemental instruction that the students do yeah. with each other, mm -hmm. where that the student who's taken the course previously, done well in it, and then can go on and mentor the next year's set of students and all that kind of stuff. Our administration has been highly supportive of students for as long as I've been here. Um, I worked, when I was in administration, I worked with Dr. John Gardner of the First Year Policy Center. He was on campus, I think, in the 70s. And um, when I worked with him in the 90s, maybe late 90s, um, he remembered being on campus, and he remembered the faculty working so closely with our students. Yeah. And he remembered specific people on, on our campus. But he talked about the importance of having tutoring that was not um, restricted. And so that tutoring needed to be available to everybody, regardless of financial ability. And Shadron State at, was one of the first to make tutoring free to our students. So the cost for tutoring is embedded in tuition. And it's continued that way up to now. Um, the cost of supplemental instructions, getting the students into the classroom, so these upper division students are hearing what the students are hearing, and then they're holding these specialized study sessions, application sessions with them outside of class, is completely free to our students. And that's a big selling point um, that I used just this morning when I met with a prospective student. Yeah, I mean, you think, you're gaining from it when you're being mentored, and if you get the chance to do it yourself, that, that teaching and rebuilding that information. Mm -hmm. You don't yeah. truly learn something until you teach it Absolutely. to somebody else. <laughs> and yeah. and you have students asking you questions from perspectives you've never, never considered. Um, one year when I was a brand new faculty member, I don't remember, it was in the early 90s, um, Jim McCafferty was still volunteering to come in every Wednesday night and tutor chemistry students. And, you know, he'd been retired for quite a few years by that point. But he came running up the stairs one evening, and he says, Oh, I'm so glad you're here. This student just asked the question. I put it on the board, and I stepped back and looked at it, and I realized I'd never made that connection before. And I thought, so here's this person that I highly, highly respect. I mean, you, you talk about the intellectual history and, and the intellectual um, pedigree of who he had taught with and who he taught. And... And he was still making connections. At that point, he'd, he'd probably been out of teaching for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I feel so much better because I'm doing that every day on the board. Absolutely. That's <laughs> but, great. Um, many of our uh, supplemental instruction students are in the health professions, and they're looking at um, doing the supplemental instruction not only to help their students, but also to help them become better so when they go to professional school, yeah. they'll be better as well. Um, I like it because they're bringing in, here's some tips and techniques that we used on these in learning this, 
And I know this doesn't seem like it's important, but you will definitely use this when you get to your next class. And so they can talk to them about why they're learning things and help put things in context. Yeah. They also provide a lot of support for um, you know, just verification or validation that you're doing a good job, mm-hmm. um, especially if, if you don't get that from... If you don't have a family that's gone through higher education, then sometimes... If you get a low grade on a test, you may not be able to put that into perspective, and your support system may not help you put that into perspective. But you go talk to these upper division students, and that you know, oh, well, I did much worse on that, but I still ended up with this grade. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Here's what we need to do yeah. to make that a learning experience. And so they provide that support in so many different ways mm-hmm. besides just <clears throat> the content knowledge. Now... You have an interest in something that is near and dear to, to both Daniel and my heart, uh, accreditation. Uh, <laughs> there was some sarcasm there, I think, in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're getting ready for this presentation, and we're, like, trying to think what we did during the HLC process for the four-year review, and it's just, like, been flushed out of our brains. Yeah. Well, I, I still feel like we've just scratched the sur- I know I've just scratched the surface on it, and, well... Maybe you can tell us more. I'm glad I, I'm glad I took notes. But but anyway, <laughs> yeah. you, you are you are an HLC peer reviewer, and I think maybe even a, a chair. That's correct. And um, uh, you know, our audience probably understands what, what what the peer review process is. But how rewarding is that process to you? Um, you you're kind of in a unique ability where you understand really really well what CSE does and who CSE is, and then. Do you compare that, like, when you go out on these visits? And I know you're looking at those institutions alone and and based on their merits, but um, you get the opportunity to kind of see different places. Yeah. You know, when I went back to the faculty or went up to the faculty or however you want to word that, one of the concerns I had was how I could continue to be um, a strong team member at the college. And I knew with my student teaching, or the teaching of students, I could do that. And I knew with the continued scholarship, with the plant distributions, I could continue to do that. But I thought there's got to be a way to bring in that administrative um, experience. And so I asked, um, I asked the president if they, they would support me in becoming an accrediting reviewer, thinking that that would be something I could give back to the college, that I could bring my experience back. It has been amazing. I have been to institutions from eastern West Virginia to, I think the farthest west was in western Oklahoma. Um, So with peer accreditation, first, the Higher Learning Commission is a group of, it's a consortium, essentially, of colleges and universities that have determined what is considered the standard best practice and what is the minimum that's expected in order to be considered a, a, a valid learning experience for the students. And so it continually focuses on, are, are you doing good work? Are you um, fulfilling the social expectations for providing learning experiences for students that will prepare them to be effective and efficient members of society? And, and um, are you doing due diligence in making sure that you're staying relevant and current and, and looking forward to where you're going, but also staying true to the mission that you're at and the people that you serve? And so um, 
when you walk into a, an accreditation review, so when I go to an institution who's very different from mine, whether it be a, you know, one of the institutions I went to focus was a medical school, you know, and it, it with multiple locations at different sites. And another institution was a, a very small private institution that was um, historically black um, that recruited primarily out of Chicago, but it was located in rural Ohio. And you go into these schools, and the very first thing you have to do is walk away from what you know about how we do things at Shattered State and get to know that institution. So you look at who they are and who they serve, what their mission is, what their vision is. And then you do this very deep dive into, okay, what are your challenges? What are your opportunities? What are, um, what are the constraints that you have based upon who's funding you? Um, and then with all of that, um, are you doing good work? And so it's fun. Mm -hmm. um, you see so many different ways that decisions that have been made in the past come back to haunt you as an institution, but also how decisions in the past have really set you up on a path for success in the future. And you just, you have to walk in and evaluate them based upon where they are. And, but you, you're constantly evaluating against those best standards. Um, as a peer reviewer, your role is to see things from a, a separate set of eyes so you're looking from the outside. Um, we do it as a peer, um, and we do it hopefully with um, the focus toward providing information that says, these are things that are really exemplary. Here's some areas that you've said you're challenged mm -hmm. on, and, and here's some additional thoughts on those challenges. And here's some things that you haven't mentioned that we think are really outstanding that you should capitalize on. So... Yeah, it's, always, it's fun. It's it's nice but, to have that outside set of eyes. And yeah. I know when we, we started the process um, for the four-year review, uh, you, you gave me a, a bit of advice that was really helpful. Um, to, you said, basically, you're writing a persuasive argument, and so make it readable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, don't just stuff it full of um, jargon and, you know, kind of um, – be yourself. And uh, so that was really helpful to hear. So I appreciate you taking the time to yeah. do that with us. The other thing is to be honest. I mean, there's always places that we could do better. Yeah. Um, some of those opportunities are not accessible to us because of cost or personnel or resources or what I mean, time mm -hmm. or whatever is limiting. But there's always ways that you can, when you do a deep dive and do a reflective analysis, you find ways that you can improve. And I think that's what's made Shattered State stay so viable and so current and, and really so, um, I mean, you walk on campus and there's a vibrancy here. Mm -hmm. and yeah, people care for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Joyce, let's um, jump over to some of your interests outside of CSC. <laughs> uh, so uh, people may have seen your cross-stitch work at the mm -hmm. Sando Center recently. They had um, an employee exhibit on. Uh, tell us a little bit about that or, you know, what, what else do you like to do in your free time? Uh, reading is probably takes up most of my time. I do like to cross stitch. I've done quite a few fairly large projects, although in the cross stitch world they're not considered large. But um, you know, some of those have had over seventy six thousand little X's in them. Oof. With um, I think the one, the biggest one I've done has had seventy eight different colors. Um, one I'm going to be starting on has over 100 colors, and it's a Santa Claus. It's going to be quite large, but uh, that'll take several years to do. 
Um, you know, probably... It's good long-term planning. <laughs> <laughs> my I, mom's been working on a cross-stitch since she and my dad were married in 1976. Good for her. So they are long-term <laughs> projects. Oh, yeah. Some of the people in the field do these huge, massive things that look like tapestries. And, wow. uh, you know, I'm, I'm not that long-term. Um, I'll tell you my favorite project that I've done. Uh, my mom came up one year. She was cleaning out trunks that my granddad had, and she found some friendship quilt blocks that were in my grandmother's uh, materials. And so this was my dad's mother, that, and they lived north of Mullen at the time. And so these quilt blocks were from women that uh, mom thought was pro were probably in her extension club, and they had um, first names on them. It was all. And so they had, you know, they, they were all the same pattern, a fairly complex pattern, um, and this first name. So everybody in this extension club made a quilt block, and then you shared those. So you made, I don't know, there's 12 of them. So you made, there were 13 people then, because my grandmother's was not in there. So you made 13, 12 blocks, and you gave them to your friends. And then she had all of these blocks there. Um, some of them had been done by hand, sewn by hand. Some of them had been sewn by machine. Some of them were done by uh, seamstresses that were quite talented, very, very good. Others, you could tell it was probably their first sewing. Um, they were different sizes, even though they were supposed to be the same size, so they had and different shapes. And my mom brought those up to me, and um, I looked at them for a while, and I thought, you know, we're going to lose the history if, if these just stay packaged and I put them in my cedar chest and they won't mean a thing to my daughter or my granddaughter. Um, so after school got out that year, she brought them up just before Christmas. So that spring then, I put them into a quilt. And as I said, the patterns were going different directions and they were different colors and they were different sizes and you want them blocked to be the same. So I framed them in um, something that looks like muslin, and I put them in quilts, and I hand-quilted this quilt. And with my mother and my sister's help, by looking through um, the history of Cherry County, because these were all southern Cherry County women, um, we were able to identify all those women. That's great. And yeah. one of them was my sister-in-law's grandmother. Um, we recognized her right away from her name, um, one of them was the grandmother of one of my best friends in high school who'd gone to school at Thedford that we had reconnected on um, social media. Um, she was born legally blind, but her quilt block was actually really well done. Um, so that was that's probably my favorite project. Yeah. I hand quilted it. I tried to do, I, I, I did the sewing with the machine, but I, I wanted to hand quilt it and it had been, you know, the last time I'd quilted when, had been when Bob and I had first got married. And so I hadn't hand quilted for 30, 35 years. Um, but that's my favorite project, yeah, that's this quilt that, uh, from people that lived. And we were able to date it. Um, Emma had, my friend's grandmother had moved from that area in 1940, and somebody else had moved from the area. So these blocks had been done in 1939. Mm. There's wow. the history. From an extension yeah. club. Yep, the extension club women, yep, from Southern Cherry County. And that was from women that lived north of Seneca to north of Mullen in the yeah. southern part of that county. 
that's the little slice of history. Yeah. <laughs> it was that's great. Fun. Yeah, I bet. Well, Joyce, we've reached that point where we ask you some questions and then just first thing that comes to top of mind. So <laughs> okay. uh, what's a favorite book or author? Lauren Isley. Okay. Um, Dr. Agenbrod introduced me to Lauren Isley when we were doing a, a Fields uh, Environmental Impact Statement survey down in the southern part of Nebraska's Panhandle. Um, I, it must have been the year that he died. But Lauren Isley, a Nebraska native paleontologist, but his writing is very much a philosophical, what's the role of man in, in, in nature? Always makes for a good read. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. Uh, what's your most, what, yeah, what professional achievement are you proudest of? Oh, um, I'll tell you the one that I think about with the greatest sense of I made a difference has to be the student success that comes after they leave us. Yeah, can't get much better than that. No, no. Yeah. no. It's always nice to see that happen. How many states have you been to? <laughs> um, not Maine, not New Hampshire, not Mississippi, not Alaska. I've only landed on an airplane and stood on the tarmac in North Dakota. I think that counts. <laughs> yeah, you stepped, you stepped sure, foot. Sure. I stepped foot, but... Um, well, 46 of 50 is pretty good. I'd like to go back to every single one. Of, I'd like to do more exploration, even of Nebraska. There's so much that I don't know. Mm -hmm. I always say we're in, lucky to be in the area that we are with, with Nebraska. I just look at it from the, the park's perspective. But, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, there's diversity of landscape and flora and fauna here. And, and yeah. people and yeah. history and, yeah. Yep. Let's see here. What's the best advice that you received as a college student? Um, I'm going to give you two. Um, best advice as a college student was to treat this as a job, but your paycheck didn't come until after you graduated. And so that was probably it as an undergraduate. Best advice I received as when I stepped into the interim dean position after Dr. Ted Davis retired was to show up to every meeting prepared. And if you did that, you were ahead of 95% of the rest of the Yeah, that's team. helpful. <laughs> um, and that's, that's an advice I pass on to the students. Regardless of what you're going into, you should know what your desired outcome is. And that way you make sure that you get as close to it as you can. Mm -hmm. Except for you guys. I didn't know what my desired outcome is coming. <laughs> it's freewheeling. <laughs> I'm going to say, as long as we get a good discussion out of it. Okay. I feel good so far. Yeah. Okay. We've yeah. only got one question left. Yeah, only anyway. one question yeah. left, so we're fine. Okay. And that one is, what is one word that comes to your mind when you think of Shattern State College? You know, this college has been like a family to me. So probably that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great answer. I don't know if we've had that one before. We've gotten home a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. family's a good one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joyce. We've really appreciated it. Well, thank you guys. Yeah, always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah.